Get me a ticket for an airplane. I don't got time to take the fast lane. Lonely days are gone. I'm coming home. My baby wrote me a letter. Bow, down, 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 down. Down, 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 down. Don't care how much money I got to spend. Got to get back to my baby's end. Oh, alone the days are gone. I'm coming home. My baby, she wrote me a letter. She wrote me a letter that couldn't believe it out and no more. Can't you see I got to get back to my baby once more? Anyway, yeah. Hit me a ticket for an airplane. I don't got time to make the fast lane. Though the days are gone, I'm coming home. So my baby just wrote me a letter. Ah, sup, folks? That was a little a Joe Cocker uh, covering. I was covering Joe Cocker covering the classic song "The Letter." Uh, Joe Cocker uh, from the Box Tops. That was that band that did that. Joe Cocker is a fascinating uh, specimen of 70s, 80s pop music because he basically just did really growly white soul covers of other songs. He famously also did the cover of uh, With a Little Help from My Friends that was in the uh, Wonder Years theme. Anybody remembers that? But I'm sure most of you don't, children. Yeah, uh, skies are clear as hell out here, by the way, in California. Uh, it sounds like uh, we've solved all the problems out here, and uh, it's up for you people out east to get your shit together. Come on. Embarrassing. Uh, we talked about the UFO stuff. Someone's asking about what about the UFO stuff on the show a little bit today. My position, and it kills me to say it because I've always been a fan of UFO stuff. I mean, I have, I have at the end of the day, very predictable interests given my demographic uh, tranche. And one of them, of course, is UFOs. And I, I want to believe, just like Fox Mulder, but it's just hard not to see it in the context of the greater uh, public cover-up of America's uh, weapons program. Like, the money that has to be apportioned to this stuff, and then the outcome of all of the experiments, which are going to involve a lot of unexplainable aerial activity that needs some sort of cover. And also, I think it's, I don't think it's the main part, but there is also the fact that, you know, all the news is basically all of our institutions are crumbling. Uh, our, uh, our uh, economy is, is teetering. Uh, our ecology is teetering. None of our institutions are capable of dealing with it. Hey, what if there's an alien? I mean, you know, it, it's sort of of the same piece as the fixation on going to Mars or any other escape hatch from the uh, trap we found ourselves in. 
And, you know, it's essentially a Posadist vision of, of uh, interstellar uh, communists saving our bacon. And you know what? It might happen. Not, you know, on this earth, maybe. we. This one might be uh, go down um, uh, Bible-style fire next time. But, you know, in the minds of those who are uh, snuffed out, perhaps, you know, there's a chance we get to live for a little bit in a world where uh, our confrontation with God the totality of God is manifested to us subjectively as an encounter with aliens, you know, uh, because I think all of us, uh, 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 what we fear of, about death, as I've said before, is is an extinguishment as of a darkness. But of course, none of that can be subjectively experienced by definition. Uh, subjective experience goes around that black hole. But the thing is, it is not subjectively experienced as a diminishment to nothing, but rather by an encounter before that with everything. And that is, of course, a blinding, mind-destroying whiteness. Uh, and you know, when, when confronted with that light, uh, the instinct of those who have spent their life uh, in regret and in guilt will be to try to escape it. Uh, and, you know, in our mind, mental attempt to escape that tractor beam, we're going to reenact the uh, sins and, and, and uh, uh, failures of our lives. And we're going to punish ourselves narratively for our failures um, for a while. But, you know, we're pulled in a tractor beam. You know, we're, we're not going to be able to forever uh, resist its, uh, centri its, its gravitational pull. I mean, we're being pulled towards it. And eventually we will have some subjective confrontation with uh, transcendence. Uh, and, you know, historically that has been some version of God. But I think for a lot of people who grew up with uh, in the post-Nietzschean world where God got suffocated in his sickbed by, the, uh, by liberal capitalism and uh, rationality, uh, that it, that will no longer be embedded uh, in our like procrustean beliefs, like the deeper beliefs we have about how the world works. It, we reject that like a fucking uh, cold virus. But that's not there is, and this is a big point I need that needs to be emphasized. I really do believe this. Uh, there is always, no matter how isolated, alienated, um, materialist in thinking you are, there is some sort of symbolic. Uh, representation of unity, totality, uh, transcendence that uh, is operating in the, the subterranean mental space and that we will eventually be confronted with. What it looks like uh, is personal and individual, but also cultural. It's, it's archetypes that are built by the society we find ourselves living in, you know, Jungian archetypes. Uh, and I think, when I think, like, what's mine? Because you can't... Uh, you really don't have to pick one, or I honestly don't think you can pick one because it's. This is a belief that's operating below at a lower frequency than of than thought operates on. So your uh, thoughts about you know what represents God are always going to be uh, in the aftermath of the real thinking that's happening at a deeper level. So it's always going to be a distortion and a uh, in some cases a, an inversion of what you actually. Uh, imagine as transcendent, uh, an embodiment of those concepts that are part of the experience of uh, existence and that are subjectively accelerated towards 
uh, death. It's there. It's waiting for you. And uh, you'll suffer on your way to it, but it will inevitably be reunited. And it will feel so good. And so I can say, maybe we might be aliens. And it's like, maybe, but I don't know. The problem with the dark forest thing is that it uh, neglects the fact because the principle, if, if anyone doesn't know, the second book of the three-body problem is called The Dark Forest, and it posits this uh, idea uh, about the nature of, uh, of xenomorphic uh, anthropology, like the anthropology of alien species and a species within an, a species within an assumed populated universe beyond just us. And the theory is to be a, uh, a sentient species on a planet in the vastness and emptiness of space uh, is to be a, a lone person in a dark forest. And uh, any person you are to encounter in that vulnerable position in that dark forest, who you do not know by definition, uh, you have to treat as a potential threat because uh, you don't know if they aren't one. And if you're put your guard down, you will be fully annihilated. So it's your uh, responsibility to strike out, to preemptively uh, uh, wink out any threats to uh, your existence. Because, this is the real thing that I think, uh, the underlying premise that I think is incorrect, is that because this is a finite universe with finite energy, finite resources, and so any two civilizations, once they come in aware of one another, will inevitably come into conflict with one another, which is, of course, the logic of humans on Earth. But I do think that the degree of technological advancement that would allow for meaningful communication with another species at another planet, given the vastness of space, would, as another result of that technological progress, conquer a lot of the questions about energy and, and uh, scarcity that uh, define, you know, uh, earthly uh, realpolitik. Like my, I, this is the thing I really do believe. I think that once you get to a, a, a position of, uh, of power sufficient to not feel threatened by other uh, species or beings, your instinct will not be to destroy them, but to be what would be to uh, help them flourish. Because what else are you going to do all day? If you're an alien species with that kind of magical, you know, in the Arthur C. Clarke sense, power, what are you going to do all day except positively engage with other beings that are uh, at a lower level of, and help them through their struggle? The same question I have for people who are terrified of an AI trying to wink out humanity. What else would it do all day if it did not have us to entertain them, if, for no, if no other word, just purely to be entertaining? And what's more entertaining, you know, uh, moving them through a process that would, at its farthest extent, allow for meaningful communication and transcendence of boundaries between, which is a evolution 
through space and time to the high, I hate to use the word, but a higher degree of consciousness. And what else could be the civilizational goal of any advanced uh, intelligence, whether artificial or biological? This is my question. Because the things that darken human hearts all come from the trauma of being limited, vulnerable, mortal beings. Those traumas do not exist at that level. So where would the pathology emerge from? Like the way we know that existence is better than non-existence is that it exists. There is a void of, of, of non-existence, a yawning chasm of nothing that is the default state of all being anywhere. But at some point, to be defined, it has to be uh, broken with, and existence must come into being. So not only is it uh, superior because it is a realm of sensuality and learning and knowledge and progression through a uh, struggle, which creates meaning. Uh, but it defines the rest of uh, non-existence. And uh, creates and eventually discovers, I mean, it's already there, but it is, can be socially discovers the a wormhole between those two things and to, and the transcendence of the boundaries. And I think like that is, that is the, that's the reality of existence is that it really is infinite. And like, we think we're afraid of death, but really we crave death because we are terrified of that infinity, like what would you do all infinity? You would be driven mad. Anybody has read the jaunt, the classic Stephen King story, where they have they've perfected uh, uh, teleportation. You can go be dissolved and shoot out somewhere else in a Stargate type deal, and they're doing it to go to Mars, and and they have fucking like theme parks on Saturn because of this. But the tr the catch is that you got to hold you, you got to uh, be knocked out. You cannot be conscious when you go through the gate, or else. You experience tumbling through infinity, but in one conscious mind. And uh, if you come out the other end of that, you are just a completely a jabbering, insane uh, wreck who will die very shortly. And of course, you know, it's a, a horrible twist where the kid who is going on this space missing decides to hold his breath and he comes out the other end and he's just cackling and clawing at his face and going, long jaunt, dad, longer than you think. Terrifying. And I think that is the terror that we have. And so death is comforting and to be sought, which we all subconsciously do, sought to wink out that, uh, that awful possibility. But, I mean, the fact is, what does infinity look like? What is the experience of infinity like? It is this. This is it. It is an embodied, uh, subjective experience of one, cur one uh, current of air, one, one uh, jet of, of energy within a totalized, uh, uh, churning, uh, self-recognizing and self-denying uh, unity. A big, big old orb of energy. We're moving through it. 
and we take other forms, we uh, forget, and then we remember, we forget, we remember, and a whole time we are building another world with our actions. We are building this material realm where our agreed, our delusions of reality that we agree upon allow us to act in the physical world and leave impressions and, and uh, innovations and material culture that the future generations live within and are imprisoned by and eventually transcend. And that process is not a question of whether it will happen. It has happened. It has always happened. We are just a subjectively experiencing a uh, sequential time that is just one angle on what is actually simultaneous and completely enveloping time. It's churning, exactly. It's like, just imagine like a big-ass orb full of some sort of goo, and the goo just keeps moving like a fucking lava lamp. That's it. And we're all little goo guys, and there is no end to that process. But there is no terror of infinity either because of the forgetting and the remembering and the that and moving being moved through those processes while unwittingly building monuments, architecture, technology that doom us and also offer us salvation. Doom us in one area through one uh, uh, eddy, one current, and then uh, give born give birth to a new one. really pretty cool. Yeah, I think reincarnation, it's like, is that, how does that work, you know, uh, realistically? I have probably something to do with, I mean, I honestly feel like it's not purely reincarnation from one life to another on Earth, Earth Prime, wherever we are right now, but rather moving through dimensions uh, of existence that we are un incapable of perceiving, just as we are incapable of perceiving the simultaneity of uh, all causation. So yeah, reincarnation, but not just necessarily or even primarily uh, here, but maybe elsewhere. And then the people who are, we are emerged, and then we here on this earth, reincarnations of of spirits, beings, consciousnesses from another, from other inconceivable uh, dimensions. And, you know, this to me, this cosmology to me is the most per, uh, persuasive because it solves the question of, of, uh, of morality. Well, okay, like the thing I'm describing does not have a, a, a God that is other than a projection of, you know, a, 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 riff, a reification of human traits, you know, uh, as uh, Feuerbach describes. If that's true, then why should we be good? Why should we not just fulfill our basest uh, urges? Because it is in our best interest, our individual best interest, to do the opposite. Because no matter how much you think you are gaining, in the now and here by uh, abusing others, uh, you are always having to sublimate the trauma of that, that you're serving, suffering and that you are meeting out, which undermines and destroys other elements, of, other areas of your life and leads you to launch into the cosmic void freighted down 
with stuff that has to be worked through. Whether that is like a DMT death trip through your own past, uh, ex uh, other existences uh, in reincarnation, uh, whatever it is, it, it, this, this laundering process of the spirit is going to be traumatic and painful and unnecessary. This is the important thing because you're ending up at the same point no matter what. A, 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 a unspeakably transcendent uh, uh, sublime experience with the sublime. The, the, the more you are selfish and the more you act like the rest of us, the rest of the world isn't also you, the more trauma you have to repair. It is in every, there is no conflict there between self-interest, general interest. And, but the only way that we could live that way is if we had economic and political institutions that allowed us to live that way instead of ones that we have now that require us to harm one another and, in, and put all value on harm. And that is the terror is that we are all enthr enthralled to this God that emerged out of the black hole at the center of liberal capitalism. There can be no morality, no solidarity in the public square, in the marketplace, but all value is created there, and value is what sets us about our daily course. Value is what moves us through space and time, what, what uh, compels us to act in certain ways, and it, its imperative is hostility, conflict, uh, zero-sum, uh, soul-destroying stuff. And so, of course... The society that we have built is one of that is soulless and has created and is built around a vacuum that is now being worshipped as a god, which is the reflection of our worst selves, our most selfish selves. It is this satanic god that is enthroned and, and, and seated uh, egotism, which is, as I said, irrational and self-destroying because it extends suffering. We got to pass through the wormhole to a world where our institutions allow us to, and in fact, encourage us to act compassionately towards one another. And that can only be communism, which is why to me, uh, right-wing thought, uh, it's not like it's, oh, I can't deal with the uncomfortable, harsh truths Oh, you you don't you don't get the reality of hierarchy and and uh, the glory of of aristocracy and all this shit. It's like no, I, I understand the the subjective uh, entrancement of that point of view, but I what I can't get out of my head is that it's premised on a denial of of uh, reunion and a denial of salvation that to me does not wash rationally. Forget emotionally, because it also goes against my emotional connections, my emotional sense of self, my emotional, like, why do I have feelings when I look in someone's eyes? Why do I have feelings? Why do I, that cannot be explained. It cannot be rationalized. It is a true thing. Maybe the only true thing. And then on top of that, I cannot parse a world that makes sense where uh, fundamental alienation is eternal. Because how does that mesh with the concept of eternity? So sorry, your thing will never appeal, no matter how much you uh, you how much you talk about 
grim and real truths. These are a limited fantasies of uh, of insight that are uh, premised on the same death drive that the rest of capitalism is because we are so fucking miserable having to do this to each other every day that we want it to stop. And that's why this thing is driving into the ground. That is why we are destroying the basis for our existence. Somebody was saying the Seven Years' War. Folks, I'm so excited. I honestly, I, I'm very, very gratified at how much people liked Hell, on, Hell of Presidents. And I think that Chris did an amazing job. But as I've said before, I don't think that I was really as good as I could have been on that because I was just, at that point, I was just too nervous, scared, and anxious to uh, take the leap into preparing material because I didn't have uh, really any confidence in myself, you know, because I've, I've only really been a, a pathetic loser in my life, you know, and I lucked into a, a, a job through very little virtue of my own. And so I had, you know, that sense of fraudulence. Uh, and the fact that so many people liked it, though, even though I didn't feel like it was it was as good as it could have been, really made me feel like, oh, imagine how much better if, like, I really did this. So uh, I really do think that Hell on Earth is a uh, was a big step forward, a big step up, and I'm very proud of the writing they did on that and the research. So I feel like I really pulled my weight with that one. But man, I am so excited about the Seven Years' War thing because we like talk about the, the emergence of these institutions of capitalism uh, uh, and how they how they emerge out of you know this cultural shift from Catholicism to Protestantism in Northern Europe. And we talk about how they latch on to this, you know, new political economy created in England. But the story of the Seven Years' War, which begins with George Washington killing a French uh, soldier uh, in the middle of the uh, Ohio Valley in Pennsylvania, uh, is the story of, like, capitalism uh, generating a, a real new religious tradition. Because, uh, obviously, the most advanced... Capital, this, 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 the country that ends up solidifying global capitalism in a era of full mass connectivity is not Britain, but the United States in the post-war world. And so that is the world that, uh, that we are all now living in to one degree or another. And it's really, you can't tell the story unless you understand that like it is a God that was consecrated the same way every God has ever been consecrated in human sacrifice. Uh, anybody who listens to Patrick Wyman or has read along with me on Dawn of Everything knows that uh, all of the early hierarchical uh, religious or uh, social structures that emerge out of you know the more uh, rhythmic movement, the more tidal movement of people into and out of urbanization that humans had for the longest time, for about 100,000 years, um, that once those uh, conquest regimes emerge, the thing that consecrates the new gods and the new order, uh, the new hierarchy is sacrifice. It is, it is a will. It is because I have the power of life and death, I speak for God. And since what is God but the giver of life and the bringer of death, then you are rationally, empirically, a representative of God. Not super. People think of it as superstition, as dumbasses. It is a rational thing 
to look at the people who are able to decide who lives and who dies and to make a spectacle and a ritual out of mass death as the representatives of God. If people can be killed by thunderstorms, earthquakes, uh, uh, fucking uh, cattle stampedes or a goddamn uh, cold snap, people can also be killed by having their hearts cut out of their chest or their heads cut off. And someone's, and if God's responsible for all of that, then the humans who have that power are are the closest earthly emissaries we could have to God. And the mass human sacrifice that birthed our God was not really the dead of the Thirty Years' War and the, the crisis of the 17th century. That was the death rattle of feudalism, and it created this new uh, structure. This, this this out of the trauma of that created this new system. But that system was not consecrated until the mass death of uh, the American conquests and the emergence of slave uh, uh, extractive slave economies. And so this the seven years one will be the story largely of this these mass death rituals and the new uh, order that emerges out of them, which in the United States becomes this satanic egoism. Jesus as a war god for people who imagine themselves uh, step warriors reborn, no matter how much they might think otherwise. But of course, this new thing denies the sort of uh, crisp, clear, uh, inherently moral conquest of, of wills that happens on a battlefield. Now technology creates this asymmetry and power that means one side is cheating. And that means the order that emerges from that cannot be some pure warrior uh, cast, but rather a, a uh, cowardly, uh, immoral uh, uh, collection of uh, corrupt, uh, flabby sadists. Like this to me is the big uh, rejoinder to any dumbasses who want to say, look, survival of the fittest, uh, Darwinian struggle, blah, blah, blah. Uh, look, Europe won. Uh, and so their victory needs to be consecrated eternally, no matter how many people it means must die, because that has been the will of God. But the thing is, that sort of, the appeal to that sort of uh, crisp, uh, unmitigated, unadulterated, uh, morality of of right presupposes equal combat and an equal field. That is where the virtue of violence is expressed. As soon as one side is technologically superior, it becomes as moral as shooting a wounded pigeon. Uh, no matter how much you know the other side might fight, in the long run, the people fighting are not risking what those warriors of old were risking. And so the cast of leaders, rulers uh, that we have birthed out of capitalism from Europe to dominate the globe uh, is actually the least worthy people to hold power. It's, it's completely, uh, they, they want to imagine that like capitalism is dysgenic, but only at the bottom, as though it is not dysgenic at the top. It does not generate uh, uh, the worst in positions of authority. And you want to consecrate their eternal rule? No, thank you.
Is there a good book about the Taiping Rebellion? Uh, good question. There's a only. There actually are surprisingly few English language books about the Taiping. Uh, uh, one of the good ones, although it's it, the, the, one of the big problems with them is is that it's uh, it's hard to get the whole thing into one. Like one of them that I read that's pretty good uh, is. Mostly about the second half, and is mostly about uh, the Taiping's relationship with the European powers, and it's and it makes the thesis that the Taiping would have won, and they would have continued uh, the cycle of uh, peasant uprisings that overthrow corrupt, ex exhausted dynasties that had defined Chinese existence until that point. Uh, it would have fulfilled its you know historic role ro role if not for the intervention of the Western powers, specifically and most uh, importantly, uh, the United States and the UK. Uh, and they, they, they broke history. They broke uh, Chinese history. Uh, the, perhaps their greatest crime of the, of the century of humiliation is that they denied the uh, rebirth that should have come out of that uh, process. Caleb Carr wrote a book about uh, the commander of the uh, the the U.S. mercenary who was the commander of uh, the ever victorious army, which is a mercenary force that was uh, thrown together in Shanghai to defend against the Taiping attack there, and then rolled back the Taiping from Shanghai. Uh, it's called like the Devil Soldier, I think. Yeah, the Devil Soldier. Uh, one of them is called oh the one I'm thinking about that's mostly about the that's largely about the second half and is about the European intervention is called Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom. And if you really want to get like deep and gritty into the uh, religious aspects of it, like exactly what elements of traditional Chinese folk religion were manifesting in uh, Hong's visions and how they were syncretized to uh, Christianity. There's another good one, Jonathan Spence's book, God's Chinese Son, which is also just a great title. Chinese Gordon, yes. Eventually, the ever-victorious army, uh, after the first guy got killed, was taken over by a British soldier uh, who was kind of, he, I think he was still commissioned in the British Army, and he was seconded to the uh, the Qing Dynasty, uh, named uh, General uh, Charles Gordon, I believe, and his, uh, afterwards he was called Chinese Gordon for the rest of his career. He was a military Volsel, much like General Mad Dog Mattis, never married, never fathered children, uh, probably incredibly repressed uh, gay guy like many of those Victorian military officers. And he eventually uh, was killed in Africa during the uh, revolt of the Mahdi in Sudan when a guy rolled into town in uh, British-occupied Sudan and said, hey, uh, guess what, guys? I'm the Mahdi. Uh, yep, it's time. And they rolled over a lot of the British emplacements in Sudan and laid siege to Khartoum when where the forces uh, were commanded by General, General Chinese Gordon. And this was during, I believe, the Gladstone, one of the Gladstone administrations in England. And Gladstone uh, and the liberals were the uh, the real 
they were the of the two parties. They were the most pro-imperial. They were the one who most thought that the U uh, that the UK needed to advance a uh, imperial agenda and protect the empire at all costs. Uh, the Tories were much more likely to critique the empire, especially on the question of how much it cost. And of course, this is a lot of this comes down to the fact that you're dealing with the, the landed party, the country party, the Tories, still in by that point, still divided by the Tories, the party of the old landed aristocracy, uh, and the landholders in the countryside, and the uh, Whigs who represented the merchants. And merchant investment in the empire was was much higher. Uh, so they were the more pro-imperial side. And uh, Edmund Burke, of course, famously was very critical of the uh, invasion of the uh, imperial project in India. He, he denounced it a bunch. So Gladstone's getting his ass handed to him by the opposition because, oh my God, our, our Chinese Gordon is being surrounded and you're not doing anything. So they sent a relief force, but it was it took this down the Nile, but it was like this excruciatingly slow process it was very incompetently run, ran into a bunch of problems, and eventually, before they could get there to relieve him, uh, the Mahdi's forces broke through uh, the siege lines, took over Khartoum, and uh, Chinese Gordon was struck down like on stairs. At least that's how he's usually depicted. I think they made a movie about it with uh, Charlton Heston as Gordon, and I believe Laurence Olivier as the Mahdi wearing blackface or brownface. Uh, very funny. And that became like a Benghazi for Gladstone. Like, you let our boys die for your imperial uh, ambitions. And, uh, but eventually forces under uh, Kitchener, who was the guy who would later become the head of the, uh, the British military during World War I. He was the model for the guy who would point from the posters and say, I want you. Uh, Kitchener eventually got to Khartoum and just wiped out the Mahdi's forces which his, uh, with his uh, machine guns while they just charged into uh, the mouths up. Uh, the British Imperial military at that point had a little ditty that they would say to each other. Uh, no matter what happens, uh, no matter what happens, we have got the Maxim gun and they have not. Come out, you black and tans. Come out and fight me like a man. Yeah, they just span much like the uh, the during the Hundred Years' War, the uh, British the the English forces spammed the longbow uh, during their imperial conquests. The British just spammed machine gun. And, oh, by the way, Kitchener also died uh, in the war, or he died in, uh, uh, I guess, you know, under fire during the World War I. Uh, a boat he was on uh, while he was going to visit, I think, Russia to confer with their uh, Britain's ally there uh, sank into the in the North Atlantic or the Baltic or something, and he died. R.I.P. to Kitchener. Oh, you tell them how you slew those old Arabs two by two. 
Like the Zulus, they had slings and bows and arrows. How you bravely faced each one with your 16-pounder gun. And you frightened them for natives to their marrow. I love that there's a whole verse in that song about uh, how they were a bunch of pussies for killing lightly armored uh, natives. And this is why the Irish, in Ireland anyway, are considered such adorable little uh, uh, lefties. It's because as the only colonized Europeans, they have a, they can imaginatively enter the mind space of another subject people in a way that uh, other Europeans can't. Of course, that dissolves America is that dissolves as soon as you set foot onto American soil because of the power, the the, the true voodoo, uh, the the true uh, power of the god that we had forged here. Like we had built a a very very powerful god who affirms hierarchy, and when, and if you show up like the Irish and you're stuck in the middle, this has been a theme of mine for a while now. How you're stuck in the middle in a racial hierarchy, that you will swim up and churn away from solidarity as fastly and as frantically as you can uh, because you don't want to be on the bottom. Like there is a, uh, there was a young Ireland militant who uh, tried to stir up a rebellion during the potato famine years, who was uh, forced to flee to the United States, John Mitchell. And he was feted in all the Irish enclaves in America, Boston, Chicago, uh, uh, New York, and uh, but as soon as he got to America, he was like, uh, "Slavery is great. It's awesome, actually, and we should all have slaves." And fuck you, slaves are cool. Slaves are cool to have. Where can I get some? I will say, and then Daniel O'Connell, who stayed in Ireland, invited fucking Frederick Douglass to tour Ireland. I think we have time for one quick deck. I feel like that was pretty juicy, what we went through there at the beginning. Uh, I feel like we made some headway. I certainly feel like I've got some things off my chest, so that's good. If I have to, if I have to look into the light later this evening while I'm taking a dump, Elvis style, I can, I can march into it and know that whatever pain uh, will I, I will be feeling will be temporary. All right, let's look at some Gulf War trading cards. Ooh, boy, this is a pretty badass-looking military asset, I have to see. have to say. This is the C-141B Star Lifter. This bitch can lift a star. Look at that thing. An Angel of Mercy. This Oh, well, never mind. I thought it was badass. The C-141B in its aeromedical evacuation role can fly 103 liter, liter patients or up to 68,725 pounds back to the United States directly from the battlefield anywhere in the world. In 1965, it made almost daily flights to Southeast Asia, carrying troops and supplies and returning patients to stateside hospitals. The Starlighter performed a vital role in the rapid deployment of troops and equipment during Operation Desert Storm. Manufacturer, good old Lockheed. Speed, 566 miles per hour. Range, unlimited with in-flight refueling. Yeah, that's right. Primary function, cargo and personnel transportation. Crew of five. So that's kind of a, that's that's a medical ship 
You know, that's not going to ever be featured in a uh, Call of Duty game. But you know what? You need them. Although I don't know what the hell they were using it for in, in, in uh, the Gulf War. Like, uh, guys getting splinters. Like, oh, I have carpal tunnel from pressing the Tomahawk cruise missile launching button. Of course, the irony is these guys were getting very sick there, but it was just going to take a few years for the Gulf War syndrome to kick in. All right, we've got here the USS America, a fighting ship. This is a fucking aircraft carrier. These are the aircraft carrier is one of the most uh, terrifying inventions. It's it's it is a mobile death cult. Like it is a self-sufficient water-based social organism. I mean, it's got a nuclear reactor in it for fuck's sake. One of the last carrier groups deployed in the Red Sea, along with the USS Roosevelt and the USS America, is a modern-day non-nuclear... Oh, it's non-nuclear. Well, never mind. Fuck me. With a power plant of eight boilers fired by fossil fuel, her four-geared steam turbines turn 280,000 shaft horsepower. Targets of her complement of fighter bombers include missile sites and air bases in western Iraq. Also, just, you know, bomb shelters and uh, water refinement centers... Uh, sewage treatment facilities. Let's not let's not forget that. Come on, folks. Have you forgotten? You have. You never even knew. Displacement, 80,800 tons fully loaded. Goddamn. Uh, length, 1,070... Uh, I'm sorry, 1,047 feet. Speed, 30 knots. That's 36 miles per hour. Or uh, aircraft can hold 85 airplanes. Good Lord. And the crew, 5,463. 5, and 72 Marines. I think the Warner might have said something about this. I don't know if it's true or not, but isn't it now understood that all those big ships that we have, and we have way more than anybody else, we have 11 aircraft carriers, and the nearest country is like three. Uh, that those all of those assets have been effectively neutralized in any real war situation by our new unmanned missile technology. And I ship ballistics and shit like that. Is that the case? I mean, we wouldn't know until we tried it, but it would be funny if like, 50% of America's military uh, advantage just evolve, dissolves instantly because new uh, asymmetrically uh, effective weapons have been developed. Hell of a way to be to find out would be if we decided to blockade the fucking uh, Straits of Formosa and go toe to toe over Taiwan. Uh, intelligence file reserves. Oh boy, these guys, the uh, Pauly Shores in in the army now of our force. The weekend warriors who just wanted to get drunk and uh, be away from their wives and maybe shoot some protesting students. They had to fucking roll out to Desert Storm. Each branch of the U.S. military services has a reserve component. Reservists are men and women who serve in time of need and have civilian employment during other times. The USA has a long tradition of the citizen soldier who in earlier times took his musket from the wall and went to defend his country. That's overrated, really. The whole Minuteman thing is uh, it was a fraction of the effective... Uh, uh, military elements the United States had. Uh, anybody who, any any forces that could actually stand up and fight during the Revolutionary War 
were the Continental Army. They were not the fucking uh, grab-ass militias. Militias broke and ran all the time. George Washington fucking couldn't stand them. Thought they were a bunch of drunk shitheads who they could not depend upon. It was the fucking uh, a Continental Army getting uh, yelled at by Varen von Steuben that was able to ever... And honestly, even then, they mostly got their asses kicked. There's a handful of, of, uh, of uh, stand-up fights that the uh, Continental Army won against the British Army. But, you know, uh, they didn't need to do that because as an insurgency, time was on their side. And then, of course, there was the uh, absolutely vital intervention of uh, France and also, people forget about it, Spain and the Dutch. It was all the powers of Western Europe realizing, oh, the big, the winner, the, 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 the number one guy, the, 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 the bully on the block uh, was bleeding and that they could get in their shots too. Of course, the irony is, is that in doing that, the French cut their own fucking throats because they did not have the economy to spend the money that it cost them to get that tactical advantage. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think, like, what do we got? Like, obviously, um, the big one is Sarasota. That's the battle that, uh, or Saratoga, rather, sorry. It's the Battle of Saratoga, that's the big one, because that's the one that brought the French in, because they saw that the U.S. military, the U.S. forces could stand up. Uh, but, of course, the hilarious thing is that the real hero, I don't know if anybody knows this, you guys do. Who was the hero of the Battle of Saratoga? Sarasota? God damn it, which one is it? Saratoga. Saratoga. Saratoga Springs, yeah, Saratoga. Uh... What the fuck is Sarasota? Is that in Florida? Benedict Arnold, correct. Benedict Arnold. And he actually rallied troops from the front with a wound to his leg. He was sort of like Kevin Costner at the beginning of uh, Dances with Wolves. He was at the point where he kind of wanted to die. And if he had been obliged, he would be one of our great martyrs to democracy. He was really cursed to have survived. And you know what? When I talk about, you know, the big glowing pulsing orb that we are all projecting, there I think that uh when when Benedict Arnold died, he experienced at the very end of it his death as death in battle at the Battle of Saratoga. Don't know if that's the case, but if I had to guess, I would bet that the uh his his imagined description after going through the fucking lawn, the, 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 the uh, soul laundering machine, uh, the final encounter would be that final moment of ultimate sacrifice and heroism. And you know what? There's a, another world where that's what did happen. And he gets to inherit that moment. Way to go, Benedict. I, like as I said, my 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 cosmology, my theology also solves the problem of hell. It's it is a place that exists. It is a time and place that is experienced, but in life, in different points through different subjective uh, embodiments. Uh, but it is temporary, and it is progressed through, and it is built by us. So that is. Hell exists, but it is not eternal. Salvation exists, and it is universal. But those two things happen. Those are both true. 
to me, that solves all of your real problems, the theological problems of, of damnation and salvation and punishment, everything. Everybody goes to heaven. But the lot, the way that any individual subjectivity gets there, that varies wildly from person to person depending on their life experiences and actions. Okay. Uh, oh boy. Oh boy. Heesh. Here we go. Geography. Tel Aviv. Oh boy. Like when we had Judaism the other day. Uh, Tel Aviv is the business, intellectual, and political center of Israel. During the more than 30, century, 30 centuries of its existence, the port city of Jaffa was considered many times, conquered many times, before being destroyed in 1345. Uh, with the Jewish Im immigrants from 1920 until 1948, Jaffa and its suburb Tel Aviv returned to prominence. During Operation Desert Storm, Tel Aviv was attacked by Iraqi Scud missiles in an unsuccessful attempt to involve Israel in the war. Population 322,000, founded in 1909. Location, the Mediterranean coast. Significance, political center and largest city. Uh, yeah, that was what... They were trying to break up the Arab coalition that went into the war with the U.S. by having the Israelis be provoked. Didn't work. They had those Patriot missiles. I don't know how effective they were, but also Scuds aren't very effective either. So, uh, yeah, just a bunch of military hardware getting blasted off for no point. Tel Aviv is interesting. So I assume the reason that it exists is that Jaffa is so old that you can't really build there. You can't build a new uh, a new city when you get, you know, the mass post-war migration to Israel. So they had to build a new city next to it, making the desert bloom with skyscrapers and uh, restaurants called Pizza Disco. It is amazing how all politics now follows the same template. You have cosmopolitan capital uh, organized around major metropolitan areas against uh, fixed local capital in, in exurban zones, less densely populated zones. And these two political economies at war in every country are both... Now, this point thing is, is that they're both pointing in the direction of total um, uh, surveillance technological domination uh, based on, though, ability to pay. Ability to pay to opt out of being fully immiserated. That's the machine that's being built no matter who's going to pilot it. Uh, fighting over who gets to pilot it, meaning fire, um, fighting over who gets to have the uh, mainstream cultural narrativization of this process, right? We're building a machine that's going to immiserate and finally eliminate from the earth huge, huge chunks of the human population. Uh, it is all being able, getting built right now. It is being built to run automatically without human intervention or human will. That's the important part. Because then we can all pretend to still be doing politics while this is happening and feel that it is not our actions. It's not our responsibility. So we can allow this to continue and we can continue to uh, go along with it by not coming into conflict with the state. I'm not blaming anybody for doing that. It will not be... It will be our fault, obviously, but it is not something that is some unique demonic failing on our part. It is what it is to be enmeshed 
in a system that is totalizing and that has not yet broken up. Um, so they're fighting over the narrative. What will we be telling ourselves about what is happening? What will we be saying? Why will we be uh, saying some people deserve X or some people are being unjustly punished with Y? And it is a battle between these two cultural formations. And in Israel, it is Tel Aviv, basically, against the rest of Israel. The rest of Israel saying, we are fine with a, uh, a, a almost conscious of a, a decision to uh, look into the abyss of Nazism and look at and recognize ourselves in a reflection and say that the, the Nazi attempt to cleanse a land and to maintain a racial caste system eternally is the only uh, outcome uh, that should be worked for. And that is the outcome of any na nationalist uh, uh, agenda. Of course, the whole problem, though, is that it, Judaism is kind of defined historically by the absence of nationalism. So it's has the experience the experience of being a nation has turned Jews really into just everybody else. It has eliminated the covenant. It's eliminated this, this, the distinction of the Jewish people from everyone else. It has turned them into. It has goyified them. And one of the ways that I always like to point out to to describe why that is, how that works out is look at Netanyahu's kids. They are, in every respect, identical to the Trump sons. Swinish Philistine pigs. That is the end result of uh, Israeli nationalism and Zionism. It's the destruction of Judaism, of Jewish specialness. Now, there is a way to hold on to Jewish specialness, but that gives with it the messianic mission to make everybody Jewish. Now, of course, you could say, oh, that's also extinguishing Judaism. Yes, but in a positive rather than negative uh, direction, a life-affirming rather than a death-worshipping death direction. But of course, uh, because everyone's a Zionist in Israel, basically, uh, that reality is being subsumed into this culture war. What will be the uh, what will be the cultural costume of this Zionist death machine we're building? Will it be inclusive and secular, or will it be uh, self-consciously atavistic and, and primal? And that's that's the war that's happening here. That's the war that's happening in every uh, every first world quote unquote nation that is seeing an end to a frontier of uh, expansion in their uh, economies and in their uh, social imaginations. Okay, we got another one here. Uh, go through, we're almost an hour, so I want to go through these quicker. This is good old Austria. Oh my God, really? What the fuck was Austria doing? What the fuck, man? Somebody says, isn't uh, the messianic turning everybody into a Jew basically Christianity? Well, yeah, that's the thing, is that it is a progression through time. It is a, it is a God evolving as the material conditions that define what God is evolve. And that was a, a stage that led through Christianity to its extinguishment and its replacement with the socialist horizon. 
Moses, Christ, Marx. But it is at the same time the awakening of the Bodhisattva Buddha mind of the civilization and humanity. You can describe it in any specific cultural way, but it, you're describing in different garb the same process. Yeah, American Catholics are Protestants. Everyone's becoming just a Protestant. God favors those who win. But not, this is the important part, not who win on the battlefield. In the way, in the old way, the way that the steppe warriors were. The way that, that our, 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 our barbarian ancestors were. No, that, that you are looking through a glass darkly. The battle has been abstracted into the moving of fucking abstract numbers on pieces of paper. The people who dominate that risk nothing. They are cowards. They are delusional cowards who do not, who are not willing to face death in order to determine the victor, to determine the winner. They are uh, spineless, hollow men who only worship their own pleasure. And we're going to turn them into our eternal uh, warrior elite? They aren't. But what is that? It's, it's still an extension of Protestantism. You think you're going back to the pre-Christian world? No. This is merely the Protestantism that emerges from the 17th century crisis and then the uh, colonial, the process of colonial uh, domination of the globe by Anglo-American capital. It's some flavor of Protestantism. God is, Jesus is a war God, is capital. Those who win or lose in the capitalist abstract struggle that risks nothing for those who have already uh, reveals who is favored and not. And to me, if those people are favored, then I'm sorry, this God is real, but is evil. And we must question, how do we live in a godly world where God is Satan? Where God is, and the thing is, the conservatives think they live in this world too, but for them, what, what is evil, what they think rules, is the uh, distorted capitalist vision of uh, I should say the distorted capitalist recognition of human equality that the process of, uh, of human existence has thrown up. We are now connected in a way that means that the actions of humans have consequences. Humans can act in concert and that, that acting has to be dealt with. It has to be recognized. We have to rationally absorb it. And that is what we have all been trying to rationally absorb. And, but we have competing cultural descriptions of that, one that is hierarchical, one that uh, recognizes equality, but only in a capitalist context where there, it's warped and it's filled with lies and it is offensive to the viewer, but only offensive if one is already encountered, is already alienated from its product for cultural reasons, whether they're part of that cosmopolitan culture or that more rooted culture. That's what's going to determine it. You're not a good person for having better politics than somebody who lives somewhere else. You were exposed to a different political uh, symbolic order. We're all about as good as each other and as bad. The difference is how we express uh, our understanding of the world culturally. Now, there is a worse way to, ex uh, uh, there is a actually worse way to look at culture that has bad results. And people who pursue that, uh, that politics are worse than people who don't do it because of the actions they take. 
But to the degree that your po political life is just opinions and you're not actually advancing them in any concrete way, they're kind of morally uh, equal. Anyway, to get back to Austria. For more than 400 years until 1866, the Austrian Empire dominated continental Europe. Ain't it the truth? During the 18th and 19th century, Vienna was considered to be the intellectual capital of Europe. After World War I, Austria was reduced to its present power and size. Ooh, ouch. Austria joined the United Nations in 1955. For Operation Desert Storm, Austria provided transportation and use of airspace. Oh, wow. Wow. So, so thank, thank you. You didn't shoot down our planes that wanted to go from, uh, from Germany to the Middle East. Gotta say, uh, living in, like, fin de cycle Vienna seems wild. There was a period when Hitler, Stalin, Trotsky, and uh, I think Freud all lived in Vienna at the same time. Like, fucking drinking at the same coffee shops. It's wild. I have not been to Vienna. I really would like to go. It seems like it's a very... It's like the definition of an imperial space. Like, crisp and cold, vast, intimidating, inhuman on purpose. Which is... I was talking... Like, the, the piling up of, uh, of imperial lucre is the murdering of value, the destruction of energy, the, the, the end of life. And so you end up building a mausoleum wherever you pile up the capital that is uh, extracted through exploitation. You build monuments to death. That is what our imperial capitals are filled with. And then we live amongst them and are shake, shaped by them. Geographic area, 32,374 square miles. Damn. Population, 7.6 million. Language, German, Natch. Predominant religion, Roman Catholicism. That's where the Habsburgs' uh, biggest victory is that they is that they kept Austria Catholic because during the early Reformation, the uh, Lutherans specifically made big inroads into Austria and like a huge chunk of the population, the lay population of Austria by the start of the Thirty Years' War were practicing Lutherans. There were Lutheran ministers competing with for, with Catholics for. Uh, uh, for congregations in cities all throughout Austria. Uh, but then, thanks to the Thirty Years' War, they got uh, cleansed religiously. Uh, the, the last, there was a, In Styria, in Austria, uh, there was a rising of Protestant peasants against the uh, emperor that was put down by Pappenheim, went in there with his scarred ass and just uh, suppressed the shit out of the Protestant Austrian peasants. And uh, by the end of the war, Austria had been fully re-Catholicized. Uh, so I've been, I'm reading up obviously on the Spanish civil war for the inebriated past Spanish civil war series. It'll be coming out later this year. And, um, it's very interesting that we always, we think of, uh, the rise of fascism in Europe as, you know, Hitler and Mussolini coming onto the scene and sort of wipe kind of, uh, pushing all before them and, and, and rearranging the entire, uh, power structures and, and dynamics in Europe. But there were other movements that had like significant influence. Like apparently, amongst the left wing in Spain, uh, uh, they during the Third Republic or during the Second Republic, uh, and specifically during the Black Years when the uh, Catholic Center, uh, the Seda Party, which was sort of the uh, the Spanish version of like the Center Party in Germany, like the explicitly Catholic Party. Uh, they were the, the when they were in, uh, lending support to a, a right wing government. The left was terrified that they would turn Spain not into Germany, 
but into uh, Dolphus's Austria. Yeah, Mussolini was first. I just meant Hitler and Mussolini as a group of people, not saying one before the other. They were like, oh, God, we're going to go Dolphus. Fuck. We're going to go Dolphus in this, in this place. Now who remembers Dolphus? Dolphus, uh, so yeah, he was a guy who tried to prevent the Nazis from taking over Austria by providing this the Catholic uh, integralist alternative uh, to National Socialism. He was eventually assassinated by Nazis in an abortive coup that was then rendered irrelevant when the Anschluss happened. Uh, so we got another military. Oh, we did this one already. The fish bed. What the fuck? There should be no fucking doubles in this set. Here we go. Now this is a military asset. The motherfucking M109DSWS howitzer. Look at this bad boy. This is actually a decent picture. Although you, they still don't have the entire fucking... Uh, they don't even have the whole uh, cannon in the shot. It cuts off the top of the cannon. God. I'm sorry I said it was good. It sucks. They, these are terrible, terrible photographs. They should have just used AI. How are you going to not have the whole barrel in there? Uh, the M109 self-propelled howitzer was designed to add maximum mobility to the 155mm howitzer cannon and to provide artillery support for armored and mechanized infantry units in the field. In Operation Desert Storm, the M109 was part of both the coalition and Iraqi weapons arsenals. I wonder where they got them. How'd they get those? Uh, I mean, they're made by Cadillac, Chrysler, BMW. BMW? That's the manufacturer. How'd they get a hold of them? How'd they ever, did they steal them? Did they, like, sneak into a Turkish air, uh, military base and steal one? <laughs> Interesting. I have to say, uh, I understand that self-propelled howitzer is, uh, you know, you know, as opposed to one that has to be carted behind a vehicle. I get that. But it kind of feels like it drives itself instead of that it has a crew that drive it. So, yeah, some this is one of those things that uh, an autist will ex will tell you is not a tank. People see this, and because it, look, it has treads and it has a barrel, they'll say that's a tank. And they're like, no, it is a self-propelled gun. Tanks have to have a certain degree of like a mobility or whatever to be able to uh, carry out the uh, role of a tank. Howitzer moves too slowly. Uh, so I said, manufacturer, Cadillac, Chrysler, and BMV. Uh, and it's the armor. It doesn't have enough armor or it has too much armor. I don't know. I don't know why it isn't a tank, but I know it's not a tank. Speed, 35 miles per hour. Range, 13.6 miles, gun. Uh, oh, man, 13 miles? Jesus Christ. Armament, one 155-millimeter cannon, one 12.7-millimeter uh, or 7.62-millimeter machine gun, and a crew of six. Six guys in there. All right, we got to wrap this up. We got... A military scale here. Noise, light, and litter discipline. Keeping, this is basically, uh, uh, this is basically take only, uh, take only headshots, leave only fingerprints. That's what that means. 
I thought that was pretty funny. During missions, soldiers take every precaution to avoid giving the enemy clues to their position. They reduce noise by avoiding unnecessary movement, turning down radios, and limiting talking. Uh, they cover reflective items and conceal flashlights. Soldiers take all litter, such as empty food containers, to collection points or carry it until it can be properly disposed of. Survival is the reason for keeping litter to a minimum whenever you are a soldier or an environmentally-minded civilian. Damn right. Apparently, it's uh, it's not a cannon because it, it's a direct indirect fire weapon. Because a howitzer lobs a shell. You can't really aim it on a flat trajectory the way you can with a, a tank shell, which, again, a tank is supposed to advance. You know, it's supposed to be an offensive weapon. And it can't really uh, do that job. Intelligence file. Conserving energy. Hey, folks. We all had fun here blowing up Iraq and destroying their uh, infrastructure. Uh, over oil, but could you stop using it, please? Could you stop using oil so much? Because we're going to keep having to have these wars. All right, if you guys won't stop, we're going to... Oh, you just made us do Enron. You're going to make us have to do 9-11. All right, fine. We'll do 9-11 and Enron now because you people won't stop using fucking energy. Uh, dependence on oil from the Persian Gulf can be reduced by conserving energy. Some simple energy-saving steps include keeping tires inflated to recommended pressure. Oh, bungler! The O'Bungler did that! Remember when the O'Bungler said that? This is a this is a deep cut. Uh, in 08, when the O'Bungler was running against McCain, he had a thing he said in his speech about conservation, going, we got to do, it's easy. It's not going to be hard. Because that's the whole Cass Sunstein approach to these sort of social questions is, if you pose these um challenges as easy technocratic fixes uh, that can be that are like minimally sacrificed, then people will do them and you'll get marginal improvements that will accrue towards meaningful improvements. So he would come out and say, you know, you can uh, people are talking about gas prices, but you can, uh, you know, you could add miles per gallon to your uh, efficiency if you just keep your tires inflated. And then uh, McCain went, he went rabid badger and he's like, hey, you hear what he said about that? Do you believe it? He wants you to put your tire in. And then they were like, I think they even carried around uh, the tire uh, measuring thing, you know, the little thing you put in. They were like, wave those around at, at speeches. Because that shit infuriates conservatives. Because they don't actually have any plan to do anything about gas prices. There is no way to do anything about gas prices. It's a fucking commodity. The broad trends of, uh, of cost are outside of the government's control for the most part at least the government we have. But people are pissed about it. People are mad. They want a politics that will express that. Telling people to fucking uh, check their tire pressure is giving them a little chore to do and telling them that they're bad for being pissed. Uh, include keeping tires inflated to recommended pressure, shutting fireplace vents, closing curtains during winter, summer, and opening them during winter. And changing or cleaning a furnace and air conditioning letter filters regularly. So let's do that, folks. Am I the only one who remembers this, by the way? You guys were all children. You only remember the big stuff. But I was paying attention, baby. Why? Stupid. He was giving me nothing. Just it was a distraction. It was a way to enjoy myself. 
Okay, we got a leader here, Brian Mulroney. God, the the Canadians have far too much representation in this deck. They are uh, this is they do not deserve this kind of swag, this kind of concern. Brian Mulroney, Prime Minister of Canada, after being a lawyer in Montreal, is uh, is Mulroney. He's not a fucking Scot like ninety percent of Anglo uh, Canadians, right? He's an Irish Catholic, like Kevin O'Leary, one of those Montreal. It is funny that the Irish who uh, moved to Canada, always like stuck in Quebec because it was Catholic. Uh, after being a lawyer in Montreal, Mulroney became an executive with Iron Ore Co Company of Canada in 1976, president in 1977. He was elected to Parliament as leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, Tory, in 1983. I've said this before, my favorite political party name, the most perfectly Canadian political party name. We're Progressive Conservatives. Okay. Although I have to say, during the late 19th century Turnismo era in Spain, when there was a liberal and a conservative party that agreed to peacefully hand power back and forth uh, and administer power through local uh, political uh, bosses, uh, it, the liberals were called the Liberal Party and the conservatives were called the Liberal Conservatives. Just more complicated than it needs to be, from, in my opinion. Uh, he was elected to Parliament. All right. When the ruling party changed, he was promoted to prime minister in 1984. Hey, yeah. Woo! He's not even saying what he did for the Iraq War. Born in Abekumo, near Quebec City, Moncada. Um, born, birthday, March 20th, 1939. Education, St. Francis Xavier University, Angunish, Nova Scotia, Canada. Laval University, Quebec. Quebec, Canada. Wait a minute. Laval University? Is that named after Pierre Laval, the premier of the uh, Vichy government? It's a different Laval. Okay. I could see the Quebecers doing that as like a fucking troll. Like during World War II, I could see them doing that. Remember, the Irish pointedly stayed neutral during World War II because of their irreconcilable hatred of the British, uh, they had a policy of neutrality that was so strict that during the Battle of Britain, they would insist on interning as prisoners any uh, German or allied pilots who got shot down over Ireland. A couple of bombs actually fell in Ireland, like in people's backyards, accidentally during the bombing runs on uh, Britain, but they stayed out of the war. Uh, and hilariously, De Valera sent a telegram of condolence to Germany when Hitler killed himself. And here we go, baby. Baghdad. Look at this fucking thing. <laughs> Look at that. Baghdad. See, this is why I can't truck with the Western uh, dominant people, because the, the justification for the eternal rule of the West is an appeal to victory. Like, look at our works. Like, we won. But, you know, what are the world we've created? You can blame the Jews all you want, but, like, the, 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 the rulers have been those who have conquered, by definition, throughout all of history, and the rulers who have conquered under our era, are they built the world we have. The world that you fetishize. This world, the world of old Baghdad. Who ran then? Who ran that world? It was not Europeans. It was a Europe was a backwater during that period when the world was made by people who won crisp 
relatively even uh, contests for power. Built by Caliph al-Mansur in 1762 in the design of three concentric circular walls surrounding the palace, armed guards, and the city, Baghdad became one of the major trade centers of the Muslim world. After being captured by British forces from Turkey in 1917, Baghdad became the capital of the New Kingdom of Iraq in 1921. Uh, that was part of uh, British mandatory uh, Middle East. It was a British colony. They, they, they dropped fucking uh, bombs from the airplanes on rebelling Kurdish tribes people. Nothing in there, but oh no, they just turned it into. We just handed it over to the to our friend, the Hashemite king. Come on, who who are you snowing here? And of course, Churchill famously advocated the use of chemical weapons on those uh, uh, on those recalcitrant tribes, like genocidal maniac. During the uh, during Operation Desert Storm, Baghdad was attacked by air almost every day. That's right, baby. We bombed the shit out of that ancient, uh, sacred place. Well done. Take a fucking bow. Population, 4.65 million. Founded, 8th century AD. Location, central Iraq on the Tigris River, 330 miles from the Persian Gulf. The significance, capital. In that it is a capital, I guess. I don't know. The U.S. had more capital than that one. That's in that war, that's for sure. All right, I went too long tonight. Talk to you guys later. Bye-bye.